Did your grandfather take risks? Yes. I guarantee he did it from a position of fuck you. A wise man's life is based around fuck you. The United States of America is based on fuck you. You're a king. You have an army, greatest navy in the history of the world. Fuck you, blow me. We'll fuck it up ourselves. Hello, everybody. What's going on? Welcome back for another edition of Nick's Nonfiction. You are here with your host, Nick Muniz. Today on the show, we are synopsizing Michael Lewis, the author of the big short Moneyball, his first batter-up bestseller, Liar's Poker. We are getting all up inside of the hidden world of trading money, stock brokering from Paris to London to Wall Street itself. Michael Lewis is an ex-bond salesman. He visited offices in Tokyo, Shanghai, and Hong Kong. Are the new capitalist thunderdomes on earth right now. You can make big bucks quick. And 1980s Wall Street, right around the period of Jordan Belfort and the Wolf himself, this is the Solomon Brothers firm today. Michael Lewis himself made more money, most likely, than 007 trading bonds stocks and bonds he was one of the biggest fish in the pond at solomon and brothers at the time they were fighting with lehman merrill lynch it was a true shark tank feeding frenzy the water got chummed every now and then with these home mortgages that they would buy up and sell at higher percents michael lewis would be considered a success story his salary and monetary standards by society he ethically puts himself in the same ring as the devil he wrote this book as an exit from the lifestyle and he said at some point it's better to tell the story than keep on living it i don't know i'm sure he misses having his own bathhouse and menu of whores whores galore every night tom wolf one of those pedantic new york times writers he says this is the funniest book on wall street from the author of the big short his quote went, Wall Street is a street with a river at one end and a graveyard at the other. Striking but incomplete, it omits the kindergarten in the middle. That's one of those comic strips you see on their website that you know nobody gets, but they act like they're better than you. So let's get into about the author. Michael Lewis makes a hard topic easy to understand for everyone. He is an author and financial journalist. He has been a contributing editor to Vanity Fair since 2009. Mostly writes business, finance, and economics. We love that here on the show. These economic authors are seen into the future. They analyze trends all data, all data, all day. Data is, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm analyzing the trends. Data is more valuable than gold right now. And these guys spending all time with the algorithms, they see the future before it happens. Michael Lewis called the 08 bank bailouts. That's why he wrote the big short as a warning again. Another $5 trillion bailout in 2020. Michael Lewis was born in New Orleans, didn't stay there long. He attended Princeton University Ivy League in New Jersey. He graduated with an art history degree. And then he attended the London School of Economics. And then he began working on Wall Street. This details most of his career today. It's more of a biography of this first book. And it's easier concepts compared to The Big Short, which is all about the subprime mortgages. It'll lose you quick. That's why they had to put Margot Robbie in a bathtub in that movie. Keeping it light today, he spent 14 years on Wall Street. That's plenty of time to stack up some money and not exactly how he ends the book today. 
Uh, he wrote Moneyball in 2003, and then the movie came out in 2011, and then he released Big Short in 2010 is uh, when he printed the book, and then it was a blockbuster by 2015. Imagine Liar's Poker gets made into a movie. If Marty Scorsese picked that one up, we would have. And, yeah, have uh, <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio play Michael Lewis. We got the piranha today, a whole bunch of uh, Matty the Patty Oliver. All of these people he's working with could be the new Jonah Hill and crew. Michael Lewis, of course, everybody has a podcast now. His is called Against the Rules. It first aired in April of 2019, and they talk about society, addressing concepts of fairness, and try to range our authentication to consumer finance. He has Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisenberger on. He's pulling big guests. He has seen behind the scene. Michael Lewis is going to take us for 12 chapters today, the first of which is called Liar's Poker. The year is 1986. It is the first year of the decline in Solomon Brothers. The chairman has just recently stepped down, a wise man by the name of John Gutfriend. I'm going to get so many names wrong today. I can't even say Solomon. Deal with it, people. John Gutfriend was his name. <laughs> Whenever he stepped on the trading floor, John, people would shudder in their loafers. People would dial faster than they ever had before. His catchphrase was, one hand, one million dollars, no tears. He was a high-stakes gamer. He uh, appointed a side man, John Merriweather, and they made hundreds of millions together when they built Solomon and Brothers. They had, These guys are billionaires. This is the top echelon of corporate finance in America we are going over today. And it's more astronomical today. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. John Merriweather and John Gutfried, two Johns, are the big starters. These guys were in like the late 70s housing market boom. They lived through a little dip early 80s, and they're going to get through the mid-80s today. If you don't know what Liar's Poker is, it's like a schoolyard betting game. Everybody holds a dollar bill to their chest so nobody could see it, and you all read the serial number before. You go in a circle, and everybody says either a fact or a lie about the serial numbers on your bill. So I'll go, I bet you $5 that your bill doesn't have more than three ones on it. And then they look at it, and they could lie to you or they try to match you and say I bet it has more and then you keep going and somebody loses and this is how Michael Lewis in the first chapter is trying to describe Wall Street it is a giant game of liars poker I buy a mortgage from you and then we sell it over to Merrill Lynch for 3.5% they sell it to someone else for 5.5% and then it goes up and up until the user wants to cash out <laughs> it's just a game of hot potato you pass it around and that's what liars poker kind of represents on the business side you can bet each other you could try to read each other's hand the hard part of the game isn't reading how many numbers are on the serial card it's trying to read everybody's tell it's like you ever play that game bs bullshit i counseled camp for like seven years and i played way too many hours of this game you go around in a circle and you say four twos and you throw down if everybody thinks you really have four twos then nobody will say a word or someone will call bullshit on you <laughs> that's wall street michael lewis says the same game gets played liars poker on the bond trading floor of solomon brothers every monday through friday from 9 to 4 30 and i'm sure they had after hours trading as well so beyond that and then they go home and sports bet these guys are you'll see who they breed to be part of the company 
Merriweather, one of the founders, once called out John Gutfried for a $10 million wager. And it was the only time that chairman Gutfried didn't take the bet. He was going, what, my wife is going to lose one of her beach houses? The point is I don't want to ever give you that much leverage to take that bet on you. And I don't want to ruin you, Merriweather. I know how much you make. Michael Lewis is just trying to say it's a game of bluffs. It's a game of poker out here on Wall Street. Chapter 2, never mention the money. The only rule in the business of money, you can't talk about it. 1984, we're going back in time a little bit. Michael Lewis has just been invited to St. James Palace. Remember, he was in the London School of Economics, and he was invited in their little feeder program for Solomon to go have dinner with the Queen's mother. So he's there with one of the recruiters. John Gutfried is there in the corner. They're not at the same table. Michael Lewis has been gawking at the British royalty all night. There's executives from some of the biggest firms on Wall Street there. And he's trying to like jump the line a little bit, get to a higher rather than one of the pledge positions starting on Wall Street at Solomon. And corporate finance is what he's trying to get into. There, It's a difference from sales and trading. On a deeper level, you can't seem too eager as a salesman. This is the best product you're ever going to buy. You have to believe as a salesman that your product is worth the person you're selling to their last penny. Is it? Are you really confident that they should be spending all? Yes. Is your product that good? Corporate finance, you got to play it cool. You're playing poker here. you got to keep the sunglasses on at all time. John Gutfried, people would say, when this guy woke up, he was ready to bite the ass off of a bear but he was always cool in person. So it's like having the stoic mindset. You're a fire burning underneath the clay facade. Michael finally gets over how cute the Queen's corgis are. He starts thinking about how many fundraisers have taken place in this exact wing of the castle. And I was just reading another book about a public correspondent who goes to the White House and is like, how many times, even since the Aaron Burr and Hamilton duel, somebody had to come and report this story. Who did they let do this? And he's just like, whoa, how many backdoor deals have gone down in this castle? This is what Solomon is up to, and this is where I'm just getting initiated. The queen was only 48 at the time. There's no way that's true. She's like 140 now. All the salesmen bow when she comes in. The corgis know how to curtsy, too. That's the best part of the royal castle. The highest-ranking person that Michael got to talk to during the whole night was Leo Corbett, who invited him to a 6.30 a.m. English breakfast the next day. He showed him around the England Solomon office, and it was one of the grossest things he'd ever seen. All the guys already were coked out by 10 a.m., having their bangers meat sweats coming out of their pores and cocaine crystals. The women, too, at the time, there was no HR. They were really, if you had to deal with the chest-pounding gorilla men and learn to adapt, Mike was absolutely enthralled as the college kid. He's like, that's the energy I need every single day from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. And he starts uh, heading back to New York to get a round of interviews in there. And the first thing he learned when meeting with all of these recruiters was analysts don't analyze anything they photocopy and proofread he's okay with that he's happy just not to be the lowest in the barrel one of the supervisors bitches who they attach beepers to the analysts are basically the pledges like this is all this underground shit they have to know you're not going to squeal so they abuse you beforehand 
And that's exactly what Michael's trying to avoid. We'll see how it goes for him. You ever see that movie I saw recently, Office Space? It's by Mike Judge. I don't know, one of the guys that makes uh, Beavis and Butthead, which is, you know, such a layered tale of drama and comedy for our day. Even the Greeks laughed at poop humor. This movie, the way the guy gets to be in the management material, he gets hypnotized and then uh, the guy has a heart attack in the middle of the hypnotism and he winds up being relaxed forever so he goes into his annual review and they're going so why do you think you deserve your job we're downsizing this year and your job is on the line and he goes well to be honest I've never really had the motivation to try to move up it seems like kind of a dead end I'm just personally not driven enough to move up here the guys mull over it for a minute wow you hear this guy he's a real straight shooter you know what, Johnson? You are upper management mentality. Mike is saying if you want to be stuck doing the bitch work forever, go and be an analyst. Go and be a broker on the floor. At Solomon, the investment bankers were the master race. They were the deal makers. They were a breed apart. At some of Michael's interviews, they had scare tactics. They employed the window test where you're on the 60th floor in the middle of New York and they open the window. They see if you sweat or you could smile through it, keep your cool. He had an interview with Lehman Brothers and they did a seven-minute silent treatment. That ain't seven minutes in heaven. You think you're bombing in the interview and they just say nothing back to you and they see if you could fill the air for a little bit. That's all these weird tests. It's literal hazing. Michael had an interview of failure that really stuck with him. The conversation ended and he was honest and like this whole thing is trying to keep a face. He was being grilled, uh, what is a stock? What is a bond? They asked like those simple of questions because they know anybody could probably do the job. They want to see if you could, if a customer asks this, you have to be able to fool them. He feels like he's being waterboarded and they asked him, why do you want this job? And Michael said, because I like money. And they want you to say, because I want to be the most motivated one in the office. I like to numerically compete with my peers. In this industry where everyone's just trying to get rich quick, going and having dinners on castle floors, the only taboo thing is to mention the money. Chapter 3, Learning to Love the Corporate Culture. Lewis started this chapter off with the Samuel Johnson quote. Got this one on my wall. He who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being man. It is the first day at Solomon Brothers. Michael Lewis showed up early to wander around Wall Street a little bit early, 7 a.m. report time. He's painting a picture of the New York yellow cabs are going around. There's all the men in their suits who seem anxious, and the hot dog slingers seem happier than anyone who's pursuing money will ever be. He keeps a balanced perspective throughout the book. He lets Salomon know this is his first day of the training period there that the London School of Finance, the NBA program, was able to negotiate for him a $42,000 raise and like $6,000 bonus in six months. He's getting paid good off the gate, but these guys get paid in bonuses. 1985 it is now. Solomon and Brothers is the most profitable firm on Wall Street, or so the rumors go. Could all be funny money. Michael was wondering off the bat how he was being paid so much. And day one, he learned how junk bonds didn't go out with the 70s. Those are still being trapped around. They just get new names every few years, like 2008 submortgage prime crisis. We're going to be going over today. The Sally Ginny May bonds turned into the Sally May loans. 
<laughs> so cheap. It's debtor's prison. Jesus said you're not allowed to <laughs> trade money for more percentage. It just like pollutes the currency. He's sitting through weeks worth of PowerPoints. The recruiting or the uh, training phase is six weeks long. They show him to the lawyer's office where if like a buyer gets cold feet, you just send him to the lawyer, say you already signed, sir. This is our money now. One of the big catches Michael had first week was just like that junk bond scammed. One of the big things Michael learned first week, if you're playing the role of salesman, you can persuade an insurance company that a pension fund is more profitable than their insurance payout. So eventually you're going to die, right? Everybody dies. That's pretty universal. And these guys are convincing people that their insurance payout, their life insurance in some cases, is more profitable than their pension. <laughs> so they're, they're getting people to give up like their life worth for a end of year, like a salary you get when you retire, a social security bubble. Why? What are we buying if it's not a tangible product? At least when you're buying a stock, you could sell it at a certain time. These guys are like, give me that money until you die. We don't need to get into all the insurance scams today. We're only on the third chapter. Michael Lewis is just getting ingrained at Solomon. He got in with one of the managers up front, and he got like the insider report. This guy was always reading the New York Times. This year, 1985, the Fed chairman, Paul Vockler announced that the money flow was going to cease fluctuation by the end of the decade, which is some cryptic telling message the Fed, 13 Jews, picked out of a hat. <laughs> I'm, that's like alt-right conspiracy, but it's true. Isn't the makeup of a diverse workplace supposed to be a certain percent of everybody? No, not when it comes to people who control the biggest bank in the world. <laughs> Paul Vockler, the Fed chairman... His decoded message is kind of like the market is going to be volatile but stable for the end of the decade. So we're stuffing the turkey again. This is how the exec describes the entire act. They would have seconds and thirds before Lehman Brothers could ever get their hands on any of these new mortgage programs or congressional subcommittee loans. And as Solomon has the biggest, they're the most trusted distributor from the Fed. He got the air from this guy that I'm not taking any questions. Just listen to what I have to say. And if you're going to try to succeed here, you got to learn to stop asking so many questions. <laughs> and he got the basic office agita. Michael Lewis saying the office felt like a prison. It was hot and stuffy. The buzzing fluorescent lights were awful. Two out of five of the weeks in, I felt exhausted. They had a lunch speaker series. Harvard business graduates were coming in. Yale Penn professors. In the back row, it was the egghead guys who were just cheering on the beer jokes. That's what you have to be. He's saying a traitor is a savage. You have to be cutthroat. Some Viking who's going to go and crusade some grandmother's savings account. It wasn't an encouraging culture in the front. You have those... Yale graduates and Penn kids that are just uh, like repeating whatever the speaker is saying, asking the same question. So they're not going to make it as far either. Michael's saying he keeps in the middle and becomes not totally anonymous because he said if you go under the radar, you might as well be unemployed. If the end of the program, the way you get picked is by one of the managers choosing you to be on their team. So he just keeps enough of a profile. 
not too much, you know, stealth is wealth. That's how a real gangsta operates. Michael Lewis, one of these weeks in the training program, he wore suspenders to work. He was like a bow tie suspenders trying to be a a hardo. <laughs> so maybe he was a front row kid. And he said that he walked onto the 75-yard trading floor and everybody laughed at him. You're not allowed to wear suspenders if you're not a manager. you got to get back into your chastity belt, you little droid. You know why they're called suspenders? Because they're sus as hell. Chapter 4, Adult Education. Mornings were Michael Lewis's favorite in the office. He was always given a little bit to settle in, have a cafeteria bagel, some stale coffee. You're surrounded by smart people all reading the New York Post. They're making sport bets for later on the day, something to get him through the workday. He's biting into a knish one morning, and a kid starts playing a phone sex operator over the loudspeaker on the trading floor. Everybody's spitting out their locks at Solomon Brothers. <laughs> uh, the guy's name was Max Johnson, an ex-Navy fighter. He had an MBA from University of Indiana. Within four weeks, him and Mike were best buddies. Susan James wound up taking over the recruiter. She was the program coordinator, basically the intern babysitter. If anybody wanted to get a message to Jim Massey or any of the higher-ups, it would have to go through Susan. She doesn't really come up later in the book too much. Jim Massey, though, one day gave one of these lunch speaker series... It was never more quiet. This guy is responsible for the trainees' futures. And he gave them a speech about the importance of culture at Solomon and how this is no joke here. We're like, even though this guy's playing phone sex operators over the loudspeaker, we are working with $3 billion in capital. Mike's looking around the room. Nobody here from the jocks in the back to the dweebs in the front are capable of monitoring the sum of three billion dollars everybody's corruptible in there mike saw especially through jim massey how <laughs> the culture at solomon is stop asking questions he was answering even more cryptic than that one supervisor before mike went as far to say direct quote in the book massey didn't want curious minds he was seeking cult followers the program director, Susan, she occupies her position with a fat bonus because she doesn't encourage students to ask questions. And she's the person who's supposed to be the onboarding agent. Uh, ask me anything. If you have any question, let me know. I'll go over your blah, blah, blah. This chick, Susan James, is a little sly one. She's one of the got a power suit on 1980s Wall Street, and she gets paid handsomely to make sure... Only the people who are going to keep it hush-hush remain on the payroll. Dale Horowitz was another one who frequented the lunch speaker series. He was a 1950s bond broker. This guy's got some experience. He's an old sphinx. He won't talk about it to nobody. And Uncle Dale's early quotes were, Those who say don't know and those who don't know say. Tying it back to his thing about the guys in the back always feel like they have to open their mouth thing before. Mike said Uncle Dale would respond with looks sharper than daggers to new questions. During one of his speeches, one of the kids went, How come the Arabs don't want to trade with Solomon? And he answered in one of his riddles, For the same reason, South Africa is our biggest client. He might be alluding to the international business law loopholes they're scheming, or because they're called Solomon and the Arab people are still butthurt about King Solomon. 
Uncle Dale Horowitz, his sense of worth was wrapped in his financial success. He told everybody not to celebrate their successes. Just act like you were expecting it. This isn't a casino, even though Wall Street's biggest casino on earth. Act like you've won. Act like a professional when you get lucky. Since you can never tell the outcome, again, those who say don't know, do not trust somebody who says, here's the way to get rich quick. I know the biggest uh, up-and-comer that you should invest in. <laughs> the training program's coming to, the, to an end. The top six performers get to go to the Dallas market, which was one of the biggest at the moment. You could get away with a lot more. The SEC is snooping around Wall Street. They weren't as keen to all the oil money down there at the time. He learns about his 401k, his pension, the insurance he gets with the company. Finally, Mike gets assigned to the human piranha. This guy is a Harvard graduate. He couldn't go one sentence without the F word. Every day, the piranha would throw a phone at Mike when he was walking by. He always had a take about the foreign markets. The frogs, you know, these guys, they quit at 5 o'clock every night. That's why we're eating their lunch. And there was this other manager that Michael almost went under, but this guy, Siegfried, he would uh, always give Mike riddles. The only thing history can teach us is history can teach us nothing. Okay, well, that's a tautology, and what do you suppose we learned from Siegfried? Why would you want to work for the Riddler? If you want to start every day with a fucking puzzle, go, you know, work at an escape room. Let's go to Chapter 5, The Brotherhood of Hoods. It's January of 1985. Matty Oliver was the freshest meat out of Harvard, and he's at the firm. This kid was the errand bitch for a while. Michael was making his nest fine in the office. This kid, Matty, was picked on constantly for his Point Dexter glasses. Some were the drunk traders on the floor who were just never giving him a break, the mean gluttons of money. Matty was known to try to pinch every dime in every deal that he was in. People called him Young Greed. He had a rapper name before hip-hop in the 90s. Not even just the SEC, even the health inspectors were snooping around the cafeteria trying to get a cut. And Matty was known to steal a lunch from time to time. All the execs, remember he's the errand boy, would say, go get me a salad, go get me a BLT wrap. And he would come back getting to keep the $100 bill they gave him. Would have been 7 bucks, dude. And so one day, Matty Oliver got pinched. The managing director called him in. He was sitting in his office with a stogie fatter than a fucking cucumber, stroking a kitten like the godfather. He's got a coke pile on the desk. He's talking, hey, Matty Oliver, it breaks my heart. It's unfunny to steal cheeseburgers. You know, Matty... I'm an old man here. On the day of my daughter's wedding, I gotta say, you're stealing cheeseburgers. I would have promoted you for this bold move. But you know I can't. I had a meeting with the executive committee. We decided to let you stay. Just like Michael Lewis with the suspect suspenders, Maddie knew that his reputation now was going to be his punishment. They weren't actually going to fire him for... I can has cheeseburgers. He's like a 2008 Rage comic who used to go on that website. <laughs> so now every time Matty Oliver went to the cafeteria, people would pretend to be the SEC with food inspector badges. He gets called Matty the Patty. It almost pushed him to an early retirement. He wanted to quit, but if you can't be the pressure release joke valve for these most profitable people in corporate America, what are you 
doing, man? It's the most 19, 19, 1985. These guys are making more money than anybody in history by comparison. <laughs> you got to take it on the chin now. And Maddie was good at that. They become good friends. Some of Michael Lewis's first weeks were some of his most educational. He got the entire history of the 1978 to 82 mortgage game, and Solomon influenced over $700 billion in home loans at that time. Imagine having a trillion dollars worth of influence. That was them in that John Gutfried period. This manager letting Michael know it's a sketchy game where buying and selling other people's mortgages, like that game of hot potato we were talking about. This manager called it the 363 Club. He goes, We borrow money at 3%, lend it at 6%, and get to the golf course by 3 p.m. From Japan to Monte Carlo, Monaco, Switzerland. Everybody was happy to get their hands on a U.S. dollar for 6%. And then they could sell it to anybody at an airport, whatever, for 10%. So they, like being the U.S. dollar, we got the most influence, the most hype at the time. We could sell it for more. And this manager is really letting Michael know the trick. You ever go to an airport and either way you're flying, it's more money to convert your dollar. It doesn't make sense. You figure that out when you're 12 years old and it doesn't... These guys are lying to sell each other the money for more. And we're going to see Michael goes to Paris later and gets involved in this racket more in depth. Anyone... This was well known in the Solomon offices. Anyone borrowing from the Federal Housing Administration had to pay 15% on their mortgage and 12% for Solomon buying and selling the money. So, like, if you get someone to refinance your loans, obviously that's the worst form of debt ponage. They're taking a 3% cut off the top. And Solomon's making money trading currencies, buying people's mortgages. Lucifer's racket. He was told one of the better trades in Solomon 1985, a guy had $50 million at 4 and a quarter percent and he sold a hundred million at five percent. <laughs> That's a free point seven five percent increase on fifty million dollars. He just made money for nothing. If you're a day trader, you dream of just having a small loan of one million dollars. You dream to have a little bit more capital and you know you grow exponentially. And these guys get are are getting direct loans from the government to then multiply the money and then trickle it down. They get to have all the fun. I mean, you employ 50 people on your super yacht, it's doing something for the economy. Michael said this wise manager also went, when homeowners are unsure of the market, they're all fidgety and scared and desperate, that is when it's easiest to herd them like a sheep into the corner and make people pay for their uncertainty. And it's just like the stock market with, uh, like, it, when everybody's scared, you could say, oh, our company just took a huge dip. Your share isn't worth this much anymore. And obviously that would be insider trading. But when you shoot it through a couple ledgers and rebrand it, call it a different type of packaging deal, a double A instead of a single A, you're just selling money, people. Like Michael said, it was a total shark tank. People were getting paid mostly by their end-of-year bonuses, and that is when you would claim whatever like you would say oh remember that 50 million sold for 100 million that was me and usually people would vouch for you but if you were overseas at the moment people would try to take your bonus true wolf pit michael lewis's painting he said during the 1977 
feeding frenzy. One of his new friends, O'Grady, was shooing people off of his desk. Like, he was standing on it, like, beating them on the head with an oar. It's like when people throw money in public and everybody goes crazy. (laughs) You have to try to keep it professional here, but even on Wall Street, they really do have those crazy events. That was basically the 1978 to 82 thing. They really went balls to the wall. There's going to be more scams in the mid-80s period here. But now you see a little more of the insider workings of this is really the mafia. These guys are loan sharks. Michael DePencil Lewis. Chapter 6, The Fat Man's Marvelous Money Machine. From 1981 to 1986, there was a second round of the feeding frenzy. The turkey was stuffed again. About a trillion dollars in home mortgage debt was put on the market. Michael also said the takeoff was due to a tax break. At this time, one thrift made a transaction fee of $10 million. For one transaction, a guy walked home with 10 mil one day. The expert said, and that's what, uh, that's what the Wolf of Wall Street was saying, he made $20 million a day. Get the the hell out of here. People are making that much money now. Some people say they make billions a month. What a fair world. The experts referred to the 1981 to 86 market as the most irresponsible period in the history of capital markets. (laughs) I mean, wait until you see 2020. These guys, though, the David Rainier up at the top, he got a bond from a salesman in California at $70 million at 3% interest. And remember, they were buying 100 mil at 5 before? 3%. That's free fucking money, people. Put it in an Apple stock even, and you're set for life. Rainier got $2.1 million from a good day's work. This guy was one of the top earners at Solomon. Michael said, if you plan to run in this new market long term, it was an act of faith, like eating bologna. Just as many people got wounded as as many people were making this astronomical amount of wealth. (laughs) Like they said in the training program before, look around you. One out of five of you is going to wind up on the streets. (laughs) I worked at a coffee shop on 16th Street in Denver. And there was this one guy who would come in. He had black skin. Not He wasn't a black guy. He was dirty as all hell. He had dreadlocks. His sweatpants had a hole in them for months. You could see his ass was exposed. People say he used to have his wits about him. He was one of the... He used to go by the wolf of 16th Street. This guy, he was an absolute wreck. They think that everybody... It's not that dramatic. People are losing their houses every time somebody's making $2.1 million a day. 1986, Ranieri became the office chairman under Gottfried, and he expanded the British mortgage market. Ranieri was instrumental in the 1984 assertion to the U.S. Congressional Subcommittee that the nation requires $4 trillion in additional housing finance by 1986. That's a bailout as big as the 2020 stimulus that was supposed to save the economy. If you're reading the trends right now, it's pretty obvious that we're going towards another depression. One of the things they say in the book is the way you could tell when the market's going to take a dip is not by how much money people have in their bank accounts. It's by when they are paying their bills. So if everybody is behind on their bills, it's about to fucking hit the fan. 
Like right now, people are not able to pay their rent, so landlords are extending whatever, giving you a break. But then landlords are unable to pay their mortgages. They're unable to keep paying to Solomon. So Solomon's going to have to ask for another $4 trillion congressional subcommittee additional housing finance. They're just going to print more money, which is going to make every fucking dollar in your wallet and bank account worth less. Candy bars are going to be $10. That's inflation on the base level. But these guys have a direct phone line to the Fed saying, hey, print us a little bit more money. It might help. <laughs> this period, 81 to 86, that Ginny May scam was going on, and they issued government money, which only they were able to default on. So, again, they get this, uh, okay, you're going to help students out. I'll give you $2 trillion, bank. And then you say, all right, student, you owe me $200,000 for a gender studies degree. You are not allowed to default on it. And then when the kid has an autoimmune disease and is fucking depressed because they didn't learn anything in school and now have no means to provide for themselves, you are not able to default on that debt, obviously, until you live to be 80, maybe. If you're earning a fucking coffee shop 20 grand a year salary, you'll never be able to pay it off. You'll never be able to default either, like you can default on a business loan. So now Solomon is saying with these Ginny Mae bonds, I can default on that loan. So you're going to the government, yeah, that kid's never going to pay me back. So now the kid is stuck paying you the money while you don't have to owe anybody shit debt ponage you're owning people this is um slave prison <laughs> tax farm we learned in leviathan that one blew the lid and this is why hong kong shanghai are some of the biggest right now <laughs> like all the kids from shanghai are going to school in america they are getting the new version of the sally may the Ginny may bond None of those kids could ever <laughs> imagine going back to China with a U.S. student loan debt. That's like your kids, your kids' kids. You are struck with four lifetimes of debt. You would, <laughs> that's literally like a prison sentence. You have to serve multiple lives. Even those kids, I did like a moving job at Delaware, University of Delaware, and these Asian exchange students were <laughs> floating in debt. They would go into these houses ripping cigarettes with... Dude, I don't know, man. It's just a bubble. This shit is unsustainable. These kids were not doing anything with their degrees. Even from the other side, we're scamming the whole world in a global scheme at this point. 1980s was one of the first times of globalization. This chapter was mentioning the credit bubble, which started in the 70s, which they were able to manipulate a little bit as well. It's like one of the first times it's all on paper now. So you could say, yeah, there's a trillion bucks coming in. <laughs> Big part of this chapter was a kid, Ruben, at the firm. Used to work at an Exxon refinery. He took three grand to Vegas, was able to turn it into 80 grand. He's a little savant. He made 25 mil his first year on the floor. He set the record for Salomon. Ruben was his name, Harvard degree. They say at Harvard, you're bound to make six figures within three years of graduating. Try two million a month if you're Ruben. Uncle Dale Horowitz played the role of human being on this executive committee and made Dave Rubin almost quit. Dave started a scheme with Merrill Lynch where he tried to do like the, we'll give you 50 mil for 100 million. But John Gutfried already did this <laughs> eight years ago and he put his foot down on it. The way Gutfried talked him down in the office, another godfather scene. 
He was saying, if this is a feeding frenzy, the sharks aren't allowed to bite each other. You got to go after what whales die or whatever whale carcass or chum is provided by our overlords. And so you can't try to scam the other firms, basically. This could bite their ass later. Chapter 7, The Salomon Diet. 1986 to 88 the bond market and all the people are finding their way back to some sort of pseudo equilibrium after that big feast people's mortgage debts disintegrated salomon is still the king on the block there's other fish that are growing in size you had lehman goldman sachs morgan stanley first boston drexel burham it just sounds like rich kid names hunter hunter biden Hunter Biden could start his own bank with the money he launders from the Haitian and Ukrainian relief funds. There is no way the rest of the market would have continued without Salomon's hammerlock on the mortgages. This is probably a biased view from Michael Lewis. He started calling it the collateralized mortgage debt obligation. And he's going, if we didn't have um, the 7-Eleven boom of the 1980s, everything would have gone to shit. They were supposed to finance people's home mortgages, and they wound up investing in 7-Eleven with it. And if you don't know, 7-Eleven is the biggest chain on earth. It's bigger than McDonald's. McDonald's! It's bigger than Wendy's. There are more 7-Elevens than anything on earth. That's why the Indian caste system has to be so strong to produce enough people for those 7-Elevens. 1987 was the bigger event of those two years. Merrill Lynch was accused of a $250 million unauthorized trade. And maybe this had something to do with some of the bullshit money Rubin sent them earlier. That shows you that Merrill Lynch was taking this scam from multiple people. And so all the lawyers at Salomon are like, is this going to come back to bite us in the ass? And this is, again, go back to don't break the covenant, don't break each other. You have to keep in the act or whatever you want. Chapter 8, From Geek to Man. This is when Michael moves to the London sales office, and he's given a lead book of all of the French names that he can't pronounce. It's all of the guys in France who have, like, the money managers with $50 million or more. Can't pronounce any of their names. The first guys was Didier Onion, D I D E R O T O N I O N, Didier Onion, <laughs> is um, assistant answers the phone. We, oui. Michael Lewis is on the phone. Hello, I have uh, the best deal that you are ever going to hear, sir. Hang up the phone now and you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. And this guy is like, Mr. Onion doesn't talk to the you Salomon bastards, especially not some lower fucking scum like you. And he does get put on hold, waits hours for Didier to answer. Didier calls him a geek. And a geek is like a recruit, basically, one of the bitches, someone who sucks farts out of the manager's asses. You're a brown noser, you just do whatever you have to. Not too much narrative there. Michael Lewis is just saying he kind of wants to not be in the position he is now. Because remember, it's been three years he's been reporting on Solomon. Now he's writing the book, but he's not making the money he needs to. While New York was in that scramble from 85 to 88, the London office went from 150 employees to 900. This guy Tom Strauss oversaw the international operation, and he said their goal, their mission statement, was to minimize competing global banks. So basically a monopoly. He's trying to set up an oligarchy with him and all those subcommittees. 
Tom Strauss also oversaw they had like a $200 million upgrade to the trading floor in London later. This guy is like in charge of vast swam, swams of money. He is the John Gutfried of London. Japan had a trading surplus at the time. Michael was taking trips there. He got some of the leads, $50 million Japanese millionaires to go chat up. He said when everyone went to the Japanese office, those people were the best at playing men at work. When your manager comes around and you have to act busy, the Japanese people were head to the keyboard. No nonsense. Michael gets involved with some tallywhacking characters out there. There's a kid named Dash who gets him involved in the Moscow market. <laughs> it could very well happen, even in our lives, that the American New York Stock Exchange is no longer the most powerful. Stonks. We could see, like he say in Moscow, it was more volatile and you could make much more money quick, which was how Solomon remained on top. They put so much into these Tom whatever characters that were able to grow you internationally. That's why like you got the NBA selling out to China right now. LeBron James. Michael Lewis, he got a inside word from a German broker about AT&T was laying fiber optic cables in Germany that year. He made 145000 off of that one deal. Just making friends over in Europe. He has assets, as the CIA would say now. He's able to make money off of these scams just with literal insider trading the first word before anybody else knows. And so Michael Lewis got to stand on his desk, lay claim to that bonus at the end of the year. He's trying to make that uh, $2 million a day salary. He's starting to learn not being in the fish tank, the shark tank that was Wall Street. It really is a zero-sum game. Being over in Europe, there's not just a certain amount of money that can be made. We can make more scams together. The pyramid can get even higher. <laughs> so we got the smartest guys in the room coming up, which is the Ponzi scheme of Enron. And, like, yeah, eventually the guy who knows that it's not zero-sum is going to try to make the biggest racket ever. When it's that big, the layman can see that it's just a scam and they pull the curtain out from under you. Hit up chapter 9, The Art of War. August of 1986, Michael was up in the Bristol Hotel in Paris having his fruit bowl in the morning. He says you can make Paris feel like New York on $2,000 a day. He's just blowing money trying to live like Jordan Belfort. He's about to be stabbed in the back. The Arabs had just sold massive holdings in gold, and the phone is blown up from the New York early risers saying, Hey Mike, what about your German insider? How's the uh, Deutsche doing? <laughs> there wasn't even, think about it, the euro didn't exist at that point, so you could sell from Europe to France to the UK. You could trade pounds for Deutsche Marks. This morning they just thought that they were losing a bunch of deals with the Arab world. And it didn't happen. Kind of a non-event. Michael Lewis was getting closer to this kid in his office, Alexander, who was part of the Vought family, Vought family. These internal mafia wars within Solomon even, where they were trying to fight for each other's leads. <laughs> Nobody, there is no camaraderie within the office space there. No Friday pizza parties. Mike says his conscience was becoming calculated. He only had enough guilt so that he could live with himself, but not enough to prevent him from getting the creeps. 
<laughs> so <laughs> Michael Lewis is admitting like the grime is really starting to get on him. He doesn't like what he's doing. He sees the people losing their homes just trying to have a real life while he's playing $2,000 a day money man. Clausewitz on War was the book that was on everybody's desk. This is what taught him to calculate his consciousness again, uh, be mindful of what you're putting out there. Half of the other people in the office had Sun Tzu's Out of War on their desk, which are like psychopath books. They say to work on Wall Street, you got to have that certain mentality, a cutthroat soldier mentality to take the person's last dollar. That's this chapter, The Art of War. He gets into the global economy. doesn't always mean that a few corporations rule everything. It just means money moves around quicker. That's what's happening more with this globalization. The middlemans will be squeezed out. It will just be giant housing committees to giant banks to you. Like, you don't go and get a mortgage from the guy in your town anymore this creepy shit right now where you get it from a no-name corporation who's buying and trading that loan a million times how is it always costing you more money michael's getting colder and colder he's becoming one of the quiet ones in the office he says words are cheap i want to perform with numbers he told one of the german people you never really feel rich in the business you only attain new levels of relative property and we've gone over this before Like, the numbers don't mean too much anymore. We're all fighting for market shares. I mean, not us at the bottom of the barrel, but Merrill Lynch and this shit, when you're dealing with $4 trillion bailouts, these are just numbers. You need a bigger percent to say you have more. And the German guy he was talking to was like, you made $125,000 in one trade? That could buy me cow and half of ice beer. He's trying to say the... European people still are a little bit more in touch with the money they're making and how that compares to their neighbors. When you go to the New York offices, you're just really sucked into the greed again. Well, I haven't seen whatever Wall Street movie that one is, Greed is Good. You could watch American Psycho. There, I was trying to make that point before the psychos make it to these positions. Wall Street, 1980s, Chapter 10. We're in the final act, Junk Bonds. Michael Lewis was put on the worst task of his career. He's in a groundhog day, day after day, of analyzing small units' performance, deciding who to fire, calling them, notifying them of the news, saying, pack your box, Solomon is downsizing. They're getting to one of the points like that Enron did as well. The, The jig is up. 1987, the bank Drexel was in the midst of the largest SEC investigation ever. Only a few people squealed, and so they were able to go on to morph into a new name. Like Solomon Brothers went on to trade until 2003. This book had been written <laughs> like the racket doesn't get busted up. It just kind of like they come out below the whistle, they shine the spotlight on the prisoners, break it up, break it up, and then everybody recedes to their trenches, goes overseas, and then again they stuff the turkey. It's a 2007 housing market that you got to get into. Bye, bye, bye. Lewis visited the Beverly Hills trading floor for the first time. He saw dozens of hundred millionaires. Michael Milken was the head over there. His battle mantra was, betray no friends, show no enemies mercy. Another Chico. This guy let 
Michael Lewis know about a article Drexel was popped for their junk bond department which Michael Milken over in Beverly Hills was saying we're selling cheap blue chip bonds and we've been fooling a lot more people for more money with these junk bonds which is the blue chip bonds it's all fucking trash this year too 1987 John Gottfried the head of Solomon convinced Warren Buffett to buy 700 million dollars in Solomon stocks so they would have started trending down too with Drexel and everybody but you got the biggest whale Warren Buffett to invest Michael said Gottfried was an expert as cloaking his own self-interest under the guise of high principle and they were going Solomon is going to help young Americans like they had those <laughs> ads on TV of a young couple with a white picket fence and a dog saying we're going to help you buy your house meanwhile they're just laundering money from Warren Buffett we're going to get into the type of scam that they were performing in the crash the last chapter up here chapter 12 when bad things happen to rich people it's like an 1112 chapter we're mixing them together the former governor of Michael Lewis's home state would used to say, Hell's hottest fire burns for hypocrites. And on July of 1987, Michael Lewis was instructed that Salomon was now prioritizing junk bonds. He's calling Salomon complete hypocrites. They are prioritizing their main business is selling bullshit to people. Salomon and Goldman that month in July of 87 extended the loan to buy out 7-Eleven for $4.9 billion. <laughs> so they're going in with Goldman to buy 7-Eleven. Gutfried was still putting Michael Lewis on some experimental projects in Paris. Those lasted until October of 1987, which we know is the big crash day, B -b Black Monday. On October 12th of 1987, the word was kind of out on the inside. They were doing the layoffs, so people were like, is something wrong with Solomon? October 12th, Mike Perlman, one of the chairmen, people thought he was evil. Picture like Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. He tried a green mail. And green mailing is when someone buys a large block of a company's stock and threatens to take over the company unless he is paid a substantial premium over the purchase price. And then in that case, someone with a reputation like a corporate raider will then buy up shares and could send the company into a panic and then investors into a buying frenzy. Almost like what Gutfried was kind of setting up with Warren Buffett. They could have forward like, whoa, Warren Buffett's going to be the new founder of Goldman or of uh, Solomon. And then it stirs up a frenzy with all the buyers thinking, this is a giant, we have to panic buy. My stock is only going to be worth half as much. They think it's going to be like a V dip in the trade where they could buy low really soon. They give it all types of names on the legal side as well, green mail, because the SEC, they have to throw as many charges at you as possible. It's all laundering money, and if none of the charges stick, which a lot of times they don't with the type of caliber lawyers that Solomon has or a Jordan Belfort, what do you think kind of a lawyer uh, Warren Buffett has? That guy's got Tom Cruise from A Few Good Men. And it was October of 19th, the stock market crash. The Dow Jones fell several hundred points. The economy slowed down completely. Interest rates 
fell, bond prices went up. It was called the 1987 municipal bond market crash. You could go read a book about it. Local government programs stopped loaning money. People stopped investing. It's just how it's going to go right now. (laughs) People at Solomon who were going to stay in the office until 2001, they didn't dissolve the company. They shorted the bond market, which (laughs) we'll get into that in the big short one day. You bet against, like, you buy a, what are those called, a stock option saying that we won't be over this certain Dow Jones point on this day. It's literally a sports bet on money. And so some of the people were like, we knew this was going to shit. They put their bets in there dancing on their desk as people lose their house. (laughs) December 18th of 1987 was bonus day. And Michael Lewis made a little more than $60,000 and walked away with a $275,000 bonus. (laughs) It's all off the books. The firm cleared $3.5 billion in capital in 1987. Michael saw them trying to offer him a, it was like a half a million dollar salary the next day at them trying to buy his loyalty because now he sees behind it. So they have to fucking offer him a lot of money. And Michael Lewis is going, if they were the true deceivers, the winners at the poker table, they would know that I was bluffing. And so he got them hired to like offer a severance package going, I was not going to work here again. They should have known that. They should have been able to read me. And Michael Lewis, he got a $200,000 severance package. Hush money. This was his fun to kickstart his writing career, which he did successfully. That is Liar's Poker, ladies and gentlemen. Hopefully we'll have the big short money ball on the show in years to come. I appreciate you guys sticking for another show. Our next edition is going to be a mystery. Keep it classy out there. I love you all. Stay golden. My name is Nick Muniz. Peace.